everybody, and welcome to another episode of Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library, four games at a time, usually. Usually. <laughs> we play them briefly, judge them harshly, and rank them, and that is pretty much all you need to know. I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. And uh, as regular listeners might know, I said usually in the opening, which means we're not going to do the regular four game thing, so we'll just get that out of the way right now. Yeah, um, it turns out we had a little bit of trouble with our setup getting Super Scope 6 to work for us. So uh, we are tabling that one for now. Uh, We're putting that one to the side. We've got something a little bit special planned for that and the other Super Scope games. So I do think I have a solution to the Super Scope problem. I do think that we're going to be able to play those games uh, fairly soon. But we decided that since we're putting it off for right now, we might wait until we've got a few more Super Scope games released, and we'll just do a Super Scope special. That's right. Uh, Nice and alliterative, and uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun, and it'll be kind of interesting to compare those games to each other. But yeah, in case you don't know, the Super Scope is the Super Nintendo's uh, light gun that was made by Nintendo. It looks like a big old bazooka, and uh, it really is designed to work on CRT televisions, and uh not that easy to come up with sort of a substitution for we're gonna figure that out though uh in the meantime though we have three non-super scope games to talk about today you know what i noticed uh, a lot of two-player games today a lot of co-op today that's true we're gonna suit up get on our little protective headgear that's almost certainly not going to do anything against the masses that we're going to be pitted against let's get out into that arena and earn some cash and vcrs and toasters don't forget toasters can't forget toasters can't forget toasters uh first game up for today is super smash tv we are going right into the far-flung year of 1999 Yeah, the future. It's the future. 1999. Uh, Humanity has become more savage and cruel than before, and uh, the the final form of that is the incredibly popular TV game show, Smash TV. Uh, You may think it looks almost exactly like The Running Man. You may think that the catchphrase that the host uses is definitely exactly the one from RoboCop. I'd buy that for a dollar! But no, this is a totally original concept right here. Right, yeah. Richard Dawson is nowhere to be seen. All of your female family members are safe from being kissed by this creepy old British guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Wow, that that was a tangent right there. (laughs) It was a bit, yeah. So this is a game that uh, was originally an arcade game. They call it Super Smash TV here pretty much just because it's on the Super Nintendo. In every respect, this is just a straight port of the arcade game. It's a pretty fully featured one, I would say. So do you want to talk a little bit about who made that game and kind of how it survived uh, the the transition to the Super Nintendo here? Yeah, so uh, this game was made by Midway. That's pretty much it. Oh, no, 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 okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so like you said, it was pretty heavily inspired by the 1987 film The Running Man, in which convicts are forced to participate in death matches against assassins for a chance at freedom. Though the story of Smash TV never specifically spells this out, the participants of Smash TV's murder game show seem 
a lot more voluntarily involved than uh, than their movie counterparts. They seem like they're just on a game show, even though this is a game show where they can die and where they are killing lots of lots other of other people. Honestly, I'm unnerved by the fact that we never really find out why all of these people are just being flooded into these rooms, mostly to be murdered immediately. Yeah, who are they? What, what is going on there? What, what is the deal with that mutoid man? He is, like, as big as a building. He's got a second head inside his head. He's kind of a robot, but he still screams like a person. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a very strange universe, but obviously they don't flesh out the story or the world because they don't want you thinking about that. No, it's fine. Don't That, that is not why you're here. They just want you to <laughs> murder all those guys and collect cash and prizes you can win many many automobiles many many toasters many vcrs because you know we might have murder game shows but we haven't gotten to dvds yet in this future apparently it almost imagines a universe in which american gladiators was the beginning of the tough guy competition tv show that sort of turned into this thing instead of like being the weird evolutionary dead end that american gladiators kind of was for television i mean even like the the armor or whatever that your guy is wearing in this looks basically like the american gladiator contestants outfit uh you know the head protection and the the singlet yeah it's it's very much in that wheelhouse um, and one of the main contributors to this was Eugene Jarvis, who is uh, a very famous you know, arcade game creator. He created Robotron 20, 2084. Is that what that's called? Yes, that is correct. That is much like this, a twin stick shooter, uh, where basically in the arcade, one of your hands will be using a, uh, a joystick to move your character around, while the other hand is uh, using a second joystick to direct the direction that you're firing in so you can move and fire independently and that's the same way that smash tv works you go room by room through these arenas where enemies flood in from the sides of the screen sometimes there are stage hazards usually you have a couple of choices for which direction to go out of each arena once you're done killing all of the guys there and collecting all the prizes that drop uh, lots of power-ups uh, that just sort of spawn randomly and and very suddenly. Uh, they only stay there for a few seconds for you to pick them up, but you can get things that increase your speed, give you a shield for a certain brief uh, amount of time, blow up all the enemies on screen, uh, give you various different weapons, and it, it's very fast. Before we get too deep into the game mechanics, uh, I also want to talk about another contributor of this game, John Tobias, who did a lot of the art. You might know his name from being involved in War combat he was one of the he was actually the artist on the early games yeah uh, he's he's the sabot in noob sabot so. that's right yeah <laughs> uh, ed boone and john tobias were basically the mortal Kombat guys until john tobias left midway in 1999 and was no longer involved with mortal Kombat. but yeah his legacy lives on in uh in the name noob cybot so uh, especially in the arcade version but really still in the super nintendo version you can definitely see his artistic contribution in the like incredibly over-the-top gory explosions This being a Super Nintendo game, the violence is toned down a bit from the arcade, though not quite as much as you would expect from a game of this vintage on the Super Nintendo, because Nintendo was very strict about violence on their consoles for a long time. It wasn't until 
I think the formation of the ESRB that they finally relaxed some of their standards on. Yeah, that. Uh, it's interesting. I'm, I was a little surprised to see what you can see in this game. But we will talk more about Nintendo and their history of violence and nonviolence when we talk about Mortal Kombat. Yeah, so let's talk about the Super Nintendo version of this a little more specifically. The graphics didn't survive tremendously intact from the arcade game, but they are there. Everything is represented. You know, there's pretty much the same amounts of enemies on screen. Nothing really looks as good, nearly as good, but it's there. The other thing that didn't quite survive intact, I think, is the gameplay, because in this game, what you have instead of two sticks is the Super Nintendo's control pad and the face buttons, which basically means that you have a much stiffer version of the same kind of gameplay that you would get in the arcade version, where you can fire in all directions, but you're you're a lot more limited in kind of how that feels to like move around and fire at the same time. It just doesn't work as well. You were saying, you know, before we started recording that this this feels a lot more almost like a bullet hell game. But I think that's true. I do also think that if this was just a straight up bullet hell game, it would actually not be a great one because it's so hard to kind of get yourself out of trouble spots if you get kind of boxed in by enemies. I enjoyed this game the more I played it, but that never felt great to me. I felt like there were definitely just times where I died because I was swamped by enemies and couldn't do anything about it. It's immediately obvious that this is a game that was meant to gobble up quarters, that that it's a port of an arcade game that was meant to gobble up quarters. Uh, Enemies come at you in swarms. You have to keep moving constantly to avoid getting caught as you pick them off one by one with your little puny gun. Like you were saying earlier, you can pick up power-ups that increase your weapon's killing power, but these last so briefly, and they're not always within reach when they appear. The, the, the swarms of enemies can very quickly limit where you can go in the room, and if they just happen to block off a power-up to you, well, you're not going to get it. The power-ups come pretty frequently, so it's not a terrible problem there, because usually there'll be another one waiting for you, but again, then you've just got to hope that it appears somewhere where you can grab it again. Right, and and the power-ups are not all equally useful. No, either. not at all. Like, there's some, there's some that are just... There's none that are useless, but there are certainly some that vastly increase your, your chances of, of surviving and kind of pushing back the tide of enemies a little bit, so that you have a little more breathing room. And if you don't get one of those, it's not a given that, that they're going to show up again very quickly. You might get something that's a lot less useful for your particular situation. Undeniably, I think that this would be more fun with a second player, which would be a lot easier to come by in an arcade than it it necessarily is for you playing at home. Uh, I do kind of question the value of having this game in your home. Like, the idea of paying, like, 60 to $70, whatever, uh, in 1992 money for the privilege of having this game in your home doesn't seem like a great value proposition to me, just because I feel like this is a game that's great to play for short periods of time and then walk away from For it. 25 cents or 50 cents, if you got a friend with you, I, I think that this game is a much easier sell for you know a few minutes of just zany, over-the-top, violent fun. But yeah, as a $50 console game... I think that's a much harder sell. I think the game just has too many frustrations built into it that aren't alleviated 
by putting it on a console. They didn't add any of those quality of life improvements. And we've talked about that before, where a game gets ported from the arcade to the console, and it still feels like an arcade game in a way that makes it less appealing as a console game. Um, Another one of those frustrations is the bosses. Boss fights just last entirely too long. They go on for so long. That's where I can feel the kind of like quarter munching uh, arcadiness of this the most, honestly. It is unbelievable how long it takes to take down like the first boss in this game. Like your regular weapon does not hurt him, so you have to pick up power-ups. And he's got all these different... He's got like, I think, three different zones on him that you have to uh, destroy individually in order to get to the point where you can actually kill him. And yeah, it just takes forever. Honestly, the boss designs in this game, I mean, not their their actual designs, but the way that the boss fights play out is just... It's just bad. Uh, like you said, they're, they're bullet sponges. They're impervious to your default weapon. So while regular rooms are just mercilessly chaotic, the boss fights become just a drawn-out exercise in patience because you have to wait for a power-up to appear before you can even proceed with the fight. You have to hope that it doesn't appear somewhere underneath the boss because the boss does take up a significant portion of the room. So it has to appear somewhere where you can actually get to it. And then you have to use it. You'll use it up and then you have to wait for another one to appear and just do this approximately 50 million times. So... Yeah, the the bosses in this game are not fun. It gets straight up boring because you'll just be having to go to a, a safe spot in the room waiting for the next power-up to appear so you can continue the fight. I feel like twin-stick shooters are in kind of a weird position as a retro game, as a game that we're looking back on from the vantage point of, you know, almost 30 years later, because... The the tricky thing here is that, like, there are games that you can play now on other platforms that uh, benefit from the control setups of those platforms to make this exact kind of game flow so much more smoothly that I really have trouble recommending this particular example of this kind of game design. Yeah, I wasn't able to really stick with this game for terribly long. And like you were saying, there have been advancements in twin-stick shooters to make them a lot more playable in a home console or home computer setting. I mean, literally just having the twin sticks is, you know... Yeah, that's a big thing, too. I mean, the face buttons are functional, but they're a poor substitute for having an actual you know, like a second D-pad or a joystick or something like that. Like, did you know you could fire diagonally in this game? Because I didn't. I figured it out eventually, but it was not at all apparent. And honestly, I don't know that it was that useful once I did figure it out. It's a strange action for me to perform on the face buttons where holding two of them down at the same time will cause me to fire diagonally. It's not something that feels terribly natural, and it's not even something that I would have thought to do without reading some instructions or a, a fact about the right. game. Right, I mean, movement and shooting in this kind of game should feel extremely fluid. Like, that's part of what makes these games fun, is just being able to be super mobile and fire in any direction, uh, and, and you know, kind of using that to your advantage as you clear out these waves of, of enemies. And that just doesn't really happen here, because it always feels kind of awkward to move and shoot in this game. Yeah, I can't help but kind of compare this to something like The Binding of Isaac, which is a much more recent twin-stick shooter that has roguelike properties in which you're fighting enemies that move in 
erratic but learnable patterns. So the game is more based on kind of figuring out what the enemy is going to do and maneuvering in a way to avoid those while firing at them. Whereas this game, they just pour hundreds of, well, maybe not hundreds, but dozens of enemies at you at a time. And kind of using just the pure quantity of the enemies as a substitute for challenge. Between not making quality of life improvements in its jump from arcade to console, and the fact that there have been better twin-stick shooters to come out since then, it's almost like time hasn't been kind to this game in either yeah, direction. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, it's it's a tricky thing, because I, I don't terribly like saying, oh, well, this this genre of game, the passage of time has kind of sanded the edges off of this this genre of game and made made modern versions of it more playable. In most cases, I don't think that's really like a well of criticism that I particularly want to go to. But I think in here, the unique mechanical difficulties of porting this kind of game to a system with this kind of control setup gets in a way in a way that you can't not discuss. I think I've I've kind of said everything I want to say about it. Did you have anything else you wanted to bring up here before we move on to ranking this one? I, I do want to say really quick, though, that we we tend to spend a lot of time sometimes on certain games talking pretty negatively about the, about them. And I don't want anyone to think that it's like we really hate this game. I don't hate Smash TV. I think it's got some merit, but I just think that it's so flawed that it's really hard to recommend. I, I was noticing that when we were talking about Lagoon the other day. I just cut together that episode. And I was like, wow, we, we really just kind of... We really kind of all over that one in a way. Yeah, we kind of kind of took that one to school, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and like, I don't hate Lagoon. There are things I like about Lagoon. Big money, big prizes. Good luck. You'll need it. Total carnage. So here's where I'm looking on the list right now. Is um, I'm kind of looking at Joe and Mac as a point of comparison. You know, they're both. Games that got ported from the arcade, they both are a lot more fun playing two-player co-op. But I think Joe and Mac is a lot more fun than this game is. Like, this game is fun in short bursts, but I think Joe and Mac, like, the entire experience is a lot more enjoyable and you're more likely to stick with it. I would say that Joe and Mac adapts much better to the Super Nintendo than Smash TV does. So after that, we've got Super R-Type, which is a game that I do not remember... I don't think this one had co-op no it did not darius twin had co-op that's right i i don't know if i like this as much as super r type i had more in the way of legitimately positive things to say about super r type than i do about this then we have draken which is also a very deeply flawed game but one that we i think ended up sounding a lot more positive on when we talked about it because of how kind of fascinating it was i think that draken is really interesting to me even if the stuff it's doing doesn't doesn't quite work I can't really think of anything else that's quite like it, which in that case does actually work in its favor. Although I don't know if we get anything quite like Smash TV on the Super Nintendo again. At least not nothing I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, that's a good point. I know there were sequels to the arcade game Smash TV, but I'm not sure if that ended up coming to the Super Nintendo. Now that we're talking about it, I, I'm thinking lower on the list than, than Draken. Or, I'm, I'm, now I'm kind of thinking about Final Fight, because I think Final Fight visually and and gameplay wise is a much better port but the fact that it loses that second player as we've said many many times really really just kicked the crutches out from under it i think in terms of, of things being lost in the porting process 
they probably draw about even just because both of the things they lose are pretty significant in different ways. Maybe Smash TV comes out a little bit ahead of Final Fight just because the 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 base gameplay is still there. It's just not as good. Whereas with Final Fight, it's like okay, like a major reason to like actually play this game is gone now. Smash TV does have some other positives going for it. They've got some built-in cheat codes that you can use to give you give yourself more continues and more lives, which probably make the game a easier to clear, or at least easier to see more of. There's there's also a few secrets in there, you know, hidden here and there. There's secret rooms. There's the apparently something called the Pleasure Dome. If you find enough keys before you get to the final level or something like that, you can get to. I, I don't know how I that works. I think this game probably is more replayable than Final Fight. I think that's pretty true. What do you think about this? Do you think that this maybe goes, goes right above Final Fight? I think I agree that this could go above Final Fight, which is currently at number 16, and then that would put it below Populous at 15. Is that is that kind of where we're thinking this goes? Our new number 16? That seems right to me. I think that sounds good. Our new number 16 is Super Smash TV. Congratulations, Super Smash TV. You're in the top 20 along with, uh, let's see. So we got we got How's Hole in One there at number 20 now with uh, John Madden football right above it at 19. So this just gets more and more interesting. I love it. Well, uh, in the interest of, uh, of adding even more to it, what do you say we move on to our next game for today? And that next game is Legend of the Mystical Ninja. So this game is one that I have a long history with. This was actually one of the very first games on the Super Nintendo that I ever played, you know, when we were kids me and a friend of mine played through the entire thing over the course of like a weekend and and had uh really just like a great time with it this is a konami game and it carries uh a lot of the same really high production values that we we saw before in uh super castlevania 4 this game uh is part of a series this is part of the ganbare goemon series that series has kind of a weird genesis it started out as kind of a pretty straightforward ninja action game and then turned into kind of a wacky sort of comedically themed series uh at a certain point this was the first game in this series to come out in the west though the the localization of this is kind of interesting because they kept the Japaneseness of this pretty solidly, like all over this game. Uh, you know, they didn't try to rename most of the stuff or change the graphics to make it look less Japanese. Uh, you know, this is a game that's set in kind of a wacky, silly version of kind of feudal Japan, and it, it does have a few changes. They did change the names of the two player characters. Uh, to Kid Ying and Dr. Yang, which um, seems like a weird choice to me. It's an extremely uh, char- weird choice. Those are not Japanese names. They're not Japanese names. These characters in every other game in the series, and even the other like Western localizations of this series, are Goemon and Ibusumaru, which... Those those have a lot of syllables in them. Maybe they thought it was too many. I don't know, but it's it's really weird and it really sticks out given that they maintained the Japanese names for like everything else in this, so This is 
is an, an action game. Each level essentially is split between a section that is kind of a top-down... I would say almost like a beat-em-up, even though most enemies die in one hit. Yeah, I, I would say that this, a good chunk of this game plays exactly like a beat-em-up. Uh, you beat up enemies, which mostly just kind of look like normal like villagers and townspeople. Uh, you take money from them, and you can use that in a variety of shops. There are tons of shops and tons of mini-games all throughout these parts of the levels where you can buy food to re- recover your health. You can buy a couple of kind of takeaway food items like pizza or at one point a hamburger. Classic Japanese cuisine. Yep, classic Japanese cuisine. I don't know if that was changed for the Western release, but I'm kind of thinking probably not. I don't think so, yeah. Probably that was just part of the game's wacky tone. Like, this game is is super anachronistic. Like, at one point you go to an amusement park, and it's just a straight-up normal amusement park. Uh, so it's not trying for any kind of, like, historical accuracy. But yeah, so the levels are split between those sections and then sections which are side-scrolling action levels, uh, kind of platform levels, that are all kind of differently themed. A lot of them have unique individual gimmicks, and each level climaxes with a pretty spectacular boss fight. Uh, And those are the different really wacky things. One of them is uh, a Japanese ghost lady. One of them is these two sumo wrestlers that once you beat them, their spirits go go into this giant sumo face that flies around the screen and uh, its facial features fall off and rearrange themselves like a Mr. Potato Head. So all kinds of crazy, just just ridiculous stuff going on in this game that's all rendered really well with, you know, some, some very colorful, uh, characterful graphics. So there's a lot of stuff that's really good about this. And I playing it now, I understand why it made such a strong impression on me as a kid, but... Uh, I have to say, it was harder to go back to than I expected it to be in a variety of ways. Yeah, so before we get to that, though, I do just want to say I think it's pretty incredible that this game did get ported over here so early on in the Super NES's lifespan that we got a game so unapologetically Japanese. I really do like the setting and everything. I think this sort of fictionalized take on feudal Japan, like the whole thing just feels like a celebration of Japanese culture. A lot of the enemies are based on creatures from Japanese folklore. Uh, Goemon himself, or Ying, uses a traditional smoking pipe, which is called a kiseru, uh, in case uh, anybody needed to know that, uh, is his weapon. Yeah, there's just a, a lot of stuff here that's just really cool. It's got a ton of personality. The production is amazing. It's really top-notch. Like This might be some of the best production story-wise like the way the cutscenes are presented and there's cool little like unique things in the individual levels like there's one level that's like a haunted maze where you go through rooms and then you go to this kind of little junction room where you step on a uh, button that rotates the room around you and then you go back out and the room is flipped and you you go through like essentially an entire another part of the level on what was the ceiling of the room cool stuff like that that literally shows up like one time in the game before it moves on to something else so there's lots of really neat stuff in this that you know just shows like a, a tremendous amount of like personality and hair that was taken in in putting this game together yeah the art style really wears its anime influence on its sleeve it's 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 real good stuff which is why i really wanted to like this game more than i actually did when i played it so the the big thing for me with this game is that 
I felt like I was constantly losing and not in the sense that like my, I was constantly dying, but that doing almost anything costs a lot. Uh, so as you progress through the kind of brawler parts of the game where you can enter shops and things like that, you're collecting money from enemies and going into the shops to buy things like upgrades for your sandals, which lets you jump a little bit farther and run faster. And it helps you just kind of progress through the game more efficiently. Uh, you also get weapon upgrades, which come in the form of these lucky cat statues that pop out of enemies on occasion. Anytime you get hit, though, you not only lose some health, you have a health bar that's pretty standard for, you know, like a brawler or something like that. But you also lose a weapon upgrade and you lose a sandal upgrade if you have either of those. And because you can only level them up so much at any given time, I constantly felt like I was just fighting a losing battle to keep my equipment upgraded to the point where I felt like I could play the game effectively. Also, the cat statues that you get in as the weapon power-ups, they start out bouncing away from you. And I was constantly finding myself chasing after them. And because enemies are constantly coming back onto the screen from either side... Yeah, this, this game kind of does the ghouls and ghosts thing where it just sort of endlessly spawns enemies for you to fight. Yeah, and because it's doing that, as I'm trying to, tra- as I'm trying to chase these damn things down, it felt like I was constantly losing power-ups to get power-ups. That's very frustrating, and I experienced exactly the same thing. Yeah, and eventually you just realize, okay, I'm just going to start throwing money at enemies, which is kind of your secondary attack, which gives you a little bit more range when you can't seem to keep your weapon power-ups. You do that, but that's costing you money. I just felt like everything, I'm just constantly consuming all of my items, and I'm not getting, I'm not feeling like I should in an area like this, where what I should be feeling is, okay, I'm getting more and more powerful as I go, until I feel confident, all right, I'm going to go to the next area, which is the side-scrolling areas, and I'm going to take on those enemies, and I'm going to take on the boss. The, the degree that this game is, like, kind of punitive to you, like, playing it, really kind of does get in the way of, of a lot of that fun that I was talking about before, which is a real shame. One thing that I will say, because I, I obviously have played this game before, and I, on this, playing it for the show, did play... Uh, you know, a, a decent bit more of it than you did is that uh, there are a few things that kind of reveal themselves about how this game works that did soften the stuff you're talking about a bit. One thing is that the sort of beat em up parts of the levels, the, the top down parts, are uh, festooned with mini games. Like there's lotteries and horse races and uh kind of concentration like kind of memory matching games and uh different little arcade games that you can play all throughout these these levels and they all cost money but almost all of them give you money back for playing them and you can kind of use those throughout the game to get yourself a lot of money so that you can sort of constantly be, like, refilling your health at shops or buying, like, kind of temporary armor, things like that. One of the minigame places is the the Game Center, which has, like, a giant TV screen with this, like, sci-fi-looking lady on it. And you can play a few different games there, like a whack-a-mole game or, like, a brick-out game. And one of them is just Gradius and it's just the first level of Gradius in this game, playing incidentally without the slowdown that Gradius 3 had. So I don't know what's going on there. That's really interesting. Okay. 
Also, can I talk about the fishermen enemies that you encounter? Because so as I started playing and I kind of started getting the hang of everything, I said, okay, I just hit these things with a pipe and then they turn into coins and everything's good. Except for the fisherman enemy. So like, you know, all the samurai and the, and the, the little ronin looking guys, they all just turn into coins. But this guy, he turns into a fish who starts flopping around. And that fish is very hard to hit. I think what it is is that you kill him, and then the fish he was carrying is still there, and it's kind of flopping around. There's actually worse ones that show up later. The game does keep introducing new enemy types. Like, there are these uh, ronins that are pushing baby carriages, and the baby will fire a gun at you. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, it's it's. A, I think it's supposed to be, like, a lone wolf and cub reference. But, yeah, there's a lot of these things that are just kind of thrown at you eventually that have very predictable patterns. But the game will send them at you constantly and constantly respawn them. So it is pretty relentless in a way that, unfortunately, I think does sap a decent bit of the fun from all of the things that are really good about this game that I talked about before. Yeah, and it's a shame because I think that this game is just a few poor decisions away from being something that I would easily recommend to everyone. Like, this is still a really solid game. I'd still recommend this game. It would just come with a lot of asterisks, you know? Uh, it's really strong in some ways, though, and once you kind of get into the rhythm with it, it can be a lot of fun to play. Yeah, and also it does still have that two-player co-op, which is neat. A neat thing about the two-player co co-op that I really appreciate about this game. You can have one character get on the other character's back, and then you're doing kind of like a, a joint control thing where the character that, that is riding the other character gets to attack, and the character that has the other character on their back is the one who's moving. This game has some pretty challenging platforming sections where if one person really isn't good at that aspect of the game, they can just let the other person handle it. And that's honestly really cool and i wish more co-op games could do something kind of similar to that all right well do we want to talk about ranking this one or was there anything else you wanted to say about it uh you know i like the graphics i like the music one of the little end of level cutscenes shows kid yang and dr yang eating some some mochi while a big octopus attacks like a condo building in the background and that's pretty good. I also like the crawling animation on Goemon. His little, his weird little snail-like uh, crawl is is, is yeah, very funny. Yeah, yeah, it's it's ve it's very good. Yeah. All right. So I'm I'm trying to look for another co-op game. I'm kind of maybe just going back to Joe and Mac, but I think this one might go above Joe and Mac. Like I think Joe and Mac is is a lot easier to get into, but I think there's more to. I mean, there's obviously more to do in Mystical Ninja. Uh, I agree. I think that. Probably, maybe East 3 is a good place to start with this one. Because I feel like some of the same frustrations are in both games, honestly. What so. makes me want to put this over East 3 is the presentation. East, it tries to tell a story through cutscenes and things like that. But the characters all feel kind of plain and, and a little bit generic in a way that Legend of the Mystical Ninja doesn't. Like, that one just oozes personality. It's got its own style. You know it's a Goemon game. I mean, you know, these days, you know it's a Goemon game just by looking at it because we have seen so many of them since then. But yeah, like, you, you, you just know that a lot of care went into the design of this game and into the animation and everything else. So yeah, I think I would put this above East 3. So that's number 10. Number 9, we've got SimCity. Uh, this is a pretty interesting matchup here. What do you think about this one? You know, honestly, I might I might put SimCity above Legend of the Mystical Ninja for one 
really specific reason, and that is that I think SimCity does a, a much better job of explaining itself to the player than Mystical Ninja does. That's something that we didn't really talk about, but there's a lot of just, like, little things in Mystical Ninja that you would really need to look at an instruction manual or walk through to to understand how they work. We mentioned before that you can throw money as, like, kind of an alternate means of attack. The game does not explain that. I knew about it because I'd already played the game, but you had to figure that out for yourself, and that's not great. Yeah, that's I, really, I didn't even realize uh, that I could switch weapons by hitting the R button my first playthrough. Like, I didn't know that that was a thing I could do. So. Just all the different stuff that, you know, you can buy from shops in Mystical Ninja. No explanation of, of any of that. Like, I went through a lot of this, like, not understanding what the, like, head armor you can buy was even good for. So, I'm yeah, still you not know, sure if I, I know exactly what the armor does. It's good for stopping projectiles, basically. Basically, the idea is that that stuff defends you against projectiles, and the body armor protects you against like getting physically hit by another enemy. So, I, all I need is fish-proof armor because those fish were like evil geniuses. Once a fish appeared on screen, I was like, "Well, that's it. That's it for me. I'm done." I think, yeah. Uh, between SimCity and East Three, probably a decent place for this game. Well, then it sounds to me. Like, this is our new number 10. All right. So, top 10 game, Legend of the Mystical Ninja. I wonder if the last game today is going to break up the top 10 as well. Nope. (laughs) Just going to say that right now. No, it will not. Here we go into the garbage with Pit Fighter. Pit Fighter. We mentioned in the last episode that we've got some history with this game. So a while back, we tried doing a series like this, but as a series of YouTube videos instead of podcasts, where we were grouping games by a theme instead of just going chronologically. So this was a game that we happened to play. It's part fighter, part brawler. This is a a port of an arcade game made by, uh, let's see who's responsible for this. The game was developed by Atari. This was was an Atari game, yeah. uh, Published by Tengen, and that's the last time I'll mention them because they would probably appreciate me not bringing up the fact that they're responsible for this. I don't know if it was the first, but it was one of the first fighting games to feature digitized graphics, meaning basically the sprites were created by taking photographs of actual actors doing the movements of the characters and converting that to something that an arcade cabinet could display. So that game got ported to the Super Nintendo, and it's not good. This is another game that was a successful arcade game that then got ported to everything. I've never played that arcade game. I've watched some videos of it. It looks visually better than this game, but it does still look like it it, it has some of the same issues. You know, it kind of being uh, like a, a one-on-one uh, fighting game slash brawler before people had really figured out how to do that in a way that was fun. The arcade version, at least, does have weapons that, that the enemies will use or, you know, that, that you can pick up and use. It, it has pretty big and detailed digitized sprites. This game has none of that. This Super Nintendo port is, like, the most bare-bones, stripped-down version of that idea you can imagine. It is a game that is both ugly to look at and hear, and it is so basic to play that there's 
almost nothing to it. This game controls poorly. The hitboxes feel imprecise. The sprites have been scaled down from their somewhat impressive digitized selves in the arcade release. Uh, they just look small and ugly here. The game is almost void of any presentation. Like, when you boot this game up, all you are presented with is just a black screen with a title, with a logo, and a few credits. Uh, the character select screen only shows you one character at a time. You hit select to cycle through them all. You've only got three characters that you play as. There's eight non-playable characters that you fight against. This game honestly does everything wrong. I can't think of a single good thing to say about this game. One of the things that I thought was so wild about this game is that it doesn't even give you health bars for you and your opponent. No, instead of giving you health bars, you've just got numbers that represent your health that go down. So yeah, they, they couldn't even be bothered to make health bars. Like I, I was watching a long play of this earlier, and incidentally, the long play was 11 minutes long. <laughs> you, you start out in kind of like a warehouse, then you go to a like train station where there's like a subway train in the background and then finally uh the final arena is like uh like a half completed skyscraper where you're playing on one of the the floors where you can see like a city in the background you have the same black and white crowd of like digitized extras kind of uh milling around and like cheering with all two frames of their animation each yeah this game is is utterly just ugly to look at it is horrible to listen to it has really bad music it, it is so hard to actually execute any kind of moves in this game like it, it's it's there are some moves like there are like throws and stuff you can do but none of it's fun i was not able to beat a single opponent because it plays so poorly just top to bottom garbage i think this game is from what i understand basically identical to the game boy port just with color graphics instead of grayscale that the game boy used and that should really tell you something because yeah this game is is bad like this game has nothing going on here i mean even bad fighting games at least have the advantage that a lot of them are going to be two players. So at the very least you could play against another person who is saddled with the same disadvantages, the same poor gameplay and bad controls that you are. But this game doesn't even do that right. Instead, if you play two player, it just puts a clone of the enemy character in the arena with you. And you both have to fight against the two AI controlled opponents, which are not saddled with the same poor control mechanics that you are. Yeah, you know, I know what somebody wants to do in a two player version of this. It's not fight their friend, it's fight the guy wearing like uh like an executioner's hood. Yeah, the executioner, yeah. I think that was just his that character's name. But again, they had to abbreviate it to exec. So I don't know. He's either an executioner or so yeah. it's the, the executive. Right. This is Fight Club. Uh, I don't know if you knew that. This is the Fight Club game. It came out like a decade before that. If, if this game did. was the Fight Club game, at least would have Fred Durst in it. That's then. true. God, he was in the Fight Club game, <laughs> he wasn't was. he? Oh no, I they forgot that. <laughs> they did that. Oh my god. You know what though? That game's probably still better than this one. It probably is. It it probably is i've never played it but i bet it's better i'm trying to think if there's anything else i can say about this but i mean honestly there isn't because there's so little to this and the little bit that is there is all garbage i honestly cannot believe 
people released this. I can't believe they just didn't say, you know what? I don't even want my name on this. I don't want, we don't want our company's name on this. Yeah, this game probably in all rights should have gotten Alan Smithied all to hell, you know? Oh, oh like, yeah, it yeah. Like, like, yeah, who, who made this game? Mr. X made this game. Don't worry about it. Let's all just walk away and pretend it never happened. So this is this is the worst game we've played, right? There's no reason to even like have like an in-depth discussion, I I don't think. When we did the YouTube series, I was so confident that we wouldn't find another game worse than this that I even went through the time and trouble of making up a new segment card in the Pit Fighter font that just said, is anything worse than Pit Fighter? Because I was so confident that that answer would always be no. Now, we we did not talk about RPM racing on that show. Despite that, though, here's the thing. I can say something nice about RPM Racing. They tried to do the double resolution thing. And at least, you know what? At the very least, RPM Racing, if nothing else, has an impressive looking title screen. And this game doesn't. Yeah, this game is worse than RPM Racing. And I hated RPM Racing. I think you are absolutely correct. There is still no question that, that this absolutely belongs at the bottom of this list. And again, you know, I, I, I still feel like it is most likely to stay there. Long may it rain. <laughs> I, not only can I not think of a worse Super Nintendo game, I can't think of a game worse than this period that was that was developed by an actual studio. I, I think you'd have to go to, like, the Action 52 cartridge for the NES to find stuff that's worse than this, frankly. Yeah, and that wasn't licensed, and it was just made by some fly-by-night company. This had actual people who knew what they were doing behind it, and it still ended up like this. And Nintendo licensed it. This is this game is, is essentially thievery, I think is what we're saying. Like, if you paid money for this back in the day, your money was stolen. I, I don't remember what movie Roger Ebert said this about, but there was a movie in which he said, this movie is not the bottom of the barrel. It's not scraping the bottom of the barrel. This movie doesn't even deserve to be mentioned in the same sentence as barrels. And I'm pretty sure it was the Tom Green magnum opus Freddy Got Fingered. You know, that sounds right to me. That's probably correct. Yeah. I don't even think that that's a fair comparison here, because at least Freddy Got Fingered was just so bizarre. Like, it just like that's a horrible movie, but at least it's distinctively, distinctively weird in its awfulness. Don't watch that movie, folks. Don't, don't, don't watch that don't, movie. But also don't. don't play this game. So this is going to be our new number 38. And if you ever forget what number Pit Fighter is at, just find out how many games are on the list. That's the number. If not permanent, then at least long time installation for our very worst game. It is Pit Fighter. That, that's quite a landmark here, folks, that you are seeing on the show. Hey, another first for the show? I completely forgot that we just entered a new month and we needed to get to Newsy. Oh but my you god, know what? You know we what? just... N- Newsy, Newsy, I think, I think Newsy just played this game. He, he had to take a break. He just had an existential crisis. He had to take a lie down. Yeah. And you know what else? No month wants to claim this game. No month wants to be associated with it. So we will talk about what happened in March of 1992 when we start next week's episode. All right. Well, next time we're going to be talking about PGA Tour Golf. Woo, more golf. Yeah, more golf. We got Lemmings. All right. We've got Extra Innings, more baseball. Yeah. And Smart Ball, which I maybe a sports game? I don't actually know what that is. So that'll be fascinating to find out. And you know what? Yeah, we're playing a, another baseball game and another golf game, but 
none of those are pit fighter and darn it i have never been happier to be playing a sports game instead of something else in my life so and you know like and, and i'm and i'm sorry you know like i know we we just sounded like every gamer jerk on youtube who's just constantly going on and on about how awful something is we do not try to be that kind of show that's not the kind of show we want to be this that's no, just how no, bad pit fighter we really, is we really it's a, it is genuinely a game that lives down to its reputation. There you go. All right, folks. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm ME Zero. Play it loud. Our intro outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty free at technoaxe.com. For more of our content, check out honestpiranha.com. Thanks for listening. You did it once, you're going to do it again, aren't you? Gonna try. 15 seconds, please. During what months of pregnancy does a woman begin to look pregnant? September. Something. <laughs> <laughs>